There is a place where fears and fantasies get weighed with substance alone. Legends and lores are examined in fresh light. Conspiracy theory meets conspiracy fact. Abandon your defenses. Embrace the possibilities. Step beyond the threshold into other realms. Listening to Threshold Radio, I'm Anthony K. With me is Sam Moranto and John Stevenson. On today's show, we have Jerry Weinstock, author of Joyride, Steve Bassett, Mike Clean, and not to mention Das Wiston and Sam Moranto talking about a whole bunch of UFO cases. So you're not going to want to miss this one. We'll be right back, starting off the show right away with Steve Bassett, right after this quick commercial break. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. I want to know who you're meeting in the cemetery. I don't have to tell you anything. Welcome back to Thresholds into Other Realms. With us right now is our friend Steve Bassett. What's going on with you, Steve? Last time we talked to you, you had a petition put into the White House. You want to tell us about that? This petition had a specific purpose. It was to try to get the White House, the executive branch, on the record regarding the ET issue for the first time, really, ever since the phenomenon exploded on the scene in early 47. So the petition read, um, we petitioned the Obama administration to formally acknowledge an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race and immediately release into the public domain all files within military services and agencies relevant to the phenomenon. So pretty straightforward, and it's obviously not about UFOs. And then there was some explanatory material there underneath it, and uh, that petition was submitted on the 22nd of September. The rules were you have to get 150 signatures before they will post it to the site, which we did immediately, and then you had to get 5,000 signatures in order to get a response. The White House got, heard estimates as high as 15,000 petitions submitted. That's good. So they got a little scared, and they jumped the uh, requirement to 25,000 signatures in 30 days, by the way, which is probably too much, and hopefully they'll back that down to 15,000. But uh, it wasn't retroactive, so we had 5,000 signatures in four or five days. 
so the petition was guaranteed a response. Eventually ended up with, I think, 12,000 signatures in total, and the White House response came on the 4th of November. And what was that? I'm anxious to hear. It was uh, what I expected, and actually more than I expected. It was really quite wonderful. The White House, uh, through the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is stated uh, in a, about nine paragraphs, they didn't say too much, that, um, sorry, but there is no evidence at all or ever has for any life outside of the Earth or for any engagement by extraterrestrials of the human race. Zip. And then further down near the end of this seat, it repeated that. There is no credible evidence of extraterrestrial presence here on Earth, which means in the sky anywhere, which was fantastic. And, th- and that response was sent out to directly by email to all 12,000 of the signatories. And of course it was, but it also got significant amount of coverage. In fact, the disclosure petition, as it was called, received more media coverage than all of the other petitions combined. And hundreds of articles were written about it and also television uh, segments around the world, uh, focusing very much on, on, of course, the White House response, which included the petition. The petition is right there along with it. And how they had finally said, oh, there are no, there's no evidence at all. So for the first time since 1947, we had the executive branch on the record regarding the ET issue. And the position was indefensible and, and false. And a stationary target. So whether they realized what they were doing or maybe they deliberately did this, it's not clear. We may never know. But what they have done here, and they will soon, I think, discover this, is they've committed what in, um, I think, uh, aeronautics training, an unrecoverable error in chess would be considered a fatal move. So uh, now they have a position. They can't uh, pretend that they don't, and they have to defend it, assuming they're required to defend it, which, of course, TRG is committed to seeing that that is the case. So now we will go after that position and do what we can to get the media to join with us. And that is why Disclosure Petition 2 was submitted on December the 1st. Oh, okay. Disclosure Petition 2, Rockefeller Initiative, is designed to go after, uh, directly confront and challenge the the White House position Mm -hmm. on this issue. And it does it in an interesting way. Uh, You have to listen really carefully to this. Petition, you're allowed 120 characters to essentially give the title, and then you're allowed just 800 characters for additional description. So you really have to work very hard to craft as much into it as you can, given the limited number of characters you have. Here is what this petition says. It's now only been up three days. That's about 1,100 signatures. Uh, we demand, or I'm sorry, we petition the Obama administration to demand a full congressional investigation of UFO ET disclosure efforts by the Clinton Office of Science and Technology Policy, the Rockefeller Initiative. Mm. And, and here's the info. Disclosure Petition 2 from ParadigmResearchGroup.org. In response to the Disclosure Petition 1, the OSTP stated, the U.S. government has no evidence that any life exists outside our planet or that an extraterrestrial presence has contacted or engaged any member of the human race. If true, what was the OSTP investigating from March 1993 to October 1996 in concert with billionaire and Clinton friend Lawrence Rockefeller? Those who knew of and have not spoken publicly of this initiative include Bill Clinton, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, Obama Transition Co-Chair John Podesta, Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta, Dr. John Gibbons, Albert Gore, and Governor New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson. And then there are two links. One is a section of the Paradigm Research Group site, and the other is a section of the President UFO.com website. Uh, the Paradigm Research Group site has a um, uh, kind of a condensed graphic approach where 173 documents confirming the Rockefeller Initiative key documents are right there in chronological order for anybody to see. Thumbnails, check it out. And then a much ex- much more extensive narrative is written up at Grant Cameron, the researcher Grant Cameron's presidentialufo.com website. 
again, going through this whole thing. Uh, so the irony here is that back in the 1990s, a billionaire Rockefeller, Lawrence, approached the Clinton administration, said they wanted to submit a letter to the president. They wanted to see an investigation, another renewed investigation begin, and a release of all UFO files to the public. And in fact, Rockefeller had mentioned early that uh, he was considering putting a, a full-page ad calling for all this in every newspaper in the United States. That would be about 5000 It would cost about $30 million at the time, I think, uh, which I think he could have afforded quite easily. They talked about that. But for the next three years, this initiative goes on. Correspondence is taking place. Meetings are taking place. Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton meet with Rockefeller at his ranch in 1995. They talk about the ET issue then. There are there was a meeting at Rockefeller's ranch in Wyoming where a bunch of researchers in this field, ET uh, UFO field, met to discuss strategy and what have you. This was serious, and they were looking at evidence. The same OSTP, essentially 15 years later, he just said there is no evidence. Now look, there there have been other investigations the government has undertaken. Uh, generally whitewashes of a sort, but nevertheless, they looked at a lot of things, and a lot of statements were made, going back into the 60s and so forth. And I could have referred to those, but I didn't. The Rockefeller Initiative is important because the people involved are still running the country. Mm-hmm. Bill Clinton, of course, is a major player in the Democratic Party, an emissary, significant figure with great influence. His wife is the Secretary of State. She was actually involved in the initiative. There's documents confirming that she was kept apprised of it, and the staff, her staff was kept apprised of it. John Podesta, who was a key advisor to Clinton at the time, knew about it and was actually involved, and he, he became Obama's tr- transition co-chair after he was elected to help pick the government. Leon Panetta was his chief of staff during the Rockefeller Initiative. He became the CIA director and now Secretary of Defense. Dr. John Gibbons, the OSTP director, is, is essentially moved on to the things. Albert Gore, of course, still a big-time player out there trying to direct or guide people regarding his concerns on a major way. And then, of course, Bill Richardson is still governor of New Mexico. These people are important players in the Democratic Party. They are major figures in the U.S. government. And oddly enough, they have never said a word publicly about this entire initiative. They just wanted it to go away because it's not convenient for them. And not ironically, the Fourth Estate, the media, had never asked any of them a single question about it. That's truth embargo, meaning we don't go there. Don't ask, don't tell. So this petition focuses on the evidence issue. It also names names. It gives a whole lot of media a very easy way to go at this. This is These people are obviously public figures. There's a lot of interest there, would be. And, and they've got the websites that provide them all the documentation obtained by Freedom of Information confirming all of this. So I think you get the, the point here. And if we are able to get 25,000 signatures by the end of December, we have till December. December the 31st, which is not going to be easy, then the White House will actually have to respond to this petition, and I can assure you that is not going to be easy. But you said they upped the so amount, up too, to the right? Public. Did you say it's 25000 yeah, now or before? Yeah, they increased it from five to 25000 Yeah, you, you got them scared. So it's a much more difficult task. Uh, it, it's twice as many signatures as we got the first time around. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's up to the people. I mean, we, we, we are spreading the word through Facebook, MySpace, Twitter, and YouTube. YouTube videos are being created. There's banners. The information link for this home base for this petition, not where you sign it, but the home base, is disclosurepetition.info. And when you go there, you, you will see the direct link to the White House website. Or you can go directly to whitehouse.gov and find it. But when you go, you have to first create an account with We the People, give them an email address, they send you back a, a, a password, use that to log in, and then you can sign all the petitions you want, uh, whenever you want. But if you've already signed a petition with We the People, then you you just use the same password, log in, sign this one. Right. So that house 
That's how it works. So now it's up to the people. Do they want this truth embargo, as I call it, to end or not? Do they want to continue to be misled and lied to for national security reasons about the reality of the world they live in and the fact that we are not alone in this universe, or do they want to do they want this information? Do they feel they have a right to know? Do they feel they can handle the truth? If the answer to these questions is yes, they need to sign this petition. This is going to have significant impact. Even if it doesn't make the 25,000, if it gets a decent amount of signatures, it's going to get a lot of media coverage. It's still going to get attention regardless, and even more, if you don't get that. That's the idea. That's one of the reasons we're doing it. And uh, even if, uh, and if they sign the petition, that's fine, but what really make a big difference is if they share the direct link, people in their social network, their colleagues, friends, whatever, and help ga- gather another five, six, seven signatures, you see, through that way. This is kind of a going, what we call going viral. If they can do that, then we will reach that 25,000 by December 31st, midnight, December 31st, East Coast time. Okay. So that's what's going on. This is petition, disclosure petition two, and when this has run its course, there will be a disclosure petition three. Now, at the same time this was filed uh, on um, December 1st, virtually at the same time, a, another petition was filed by an, another a group led by author researcher uh, Richard Dolan and uh, playwright, or, or rather a screenplay writer and producer uh, Bryce Zabel. They co-authored, by the way, a very important book, A.D. After Disclosure. They submitted a petition as well, and it essentially approaches the the first the, the White House response, the first response from a slightly different angle. Now, this petition says we petition the o- Obama administration to investigate unidentified aerial phenomena as reported by citizens, police, astronauts, pilots, and military. This is, there is a huge body of evidence, particularly from pilots, military and civilian pilots, that is impossible to overlook. It's the evidence that, that the White House says doesn't exist at all. We're talking about a massive pilot database of 3,500 to 4,000 sightings been amassed over a number of years. And this is available, easily available, and fine. And, and this, is, uh, th- this petition is very much playing into the Leslie Kane's work with her book, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials, and the documentary Secret Access, UFOs on the Record, that was uh, came out uh, in August of this year. She has done a lot of work with trying to get some of the government witnesses, particularly people involving in sightings and military uh, before the public, and it's important work, playing off of that. But it, So it's bringing the evidence issue there. Different angle. I don't know. The, the White House may lump them together and respond to both, if, should they both reach 25,000, or it may not. Um, it, it could keep them separate. I, I think they should be separate, because I think they're too, they're, they're too different to be put together, but the White House Correct. is going to do what it's going to do. But both petitions, there's only two petitions up, that now, up there that are dealing with the uh, issue, because even though 14,000, 15,000 petitions have been submitted, very few of the people that have submitted petitions have the ability to go out and get the signatures. Uh, they're not organized. They don't have the network, whatever. And so only three to 400 have actually made it onto the site of these many thousands that have been submitted. And only a couple of dozen have cleared the signature threshold. Most of those were when the threshold was 5,000. A lot less, believe me, are going to make 25,000. Was there any explanation so, for the increase in the you know, to the 25,000? Or they just did it? Yeah. They they didn't know what was going to happen. They, they went into this. This was the first time. I mean, they did something similar with the transition website, change.gov, way back after the election. So 
so they had some experience with it, but they just didn't know what to expect, and they got inundated with petitions, thousands of them, and they realized that quite a few of them could make the 5,000 threshold, and they, they could end up with a couple of thousand petitions to respond to, and they realized, why wow, we, we, that's more than we can handle. So they panicked a little bit, and so they jumped it to 25, which is too much. I would think, my guess is that about 15,000 is a good number, but, and they may, and they may well change, they could change it anytime they want, but that's why they did. It wasn't, it wasn't because of the disclosure petition, it was because they were trying to limit the total number of petitions that are going to emerge from this initiative. Okay, it wasn't just because so, of the UFO alien one then. It was actually, no. there are other reasons no. for it too. They're just, they're just feeling their way, right? So um, uh, this is underway, and again, the website that will, you can you can see the current petition, you can see the last petition, you can see the you can see the media coverage, videos, all that stuff. It's at disclosurepetition.info. It's not a fancy site, it's very basic. I don't have the time or necessarily believe in making super fancy sites with the clever graphics and everything. I just Got to get right to the point. And that's what's underway. Uh, this is non-trivial. I can assure you that none of the people that I have named want to be asked anything about that initiative. They don't want to have to answer. This is part of a very disturbing trend where the highest people in government just don't feel they're accountable to us. They only want to tell us what they want to tell us, and if they need, if they need to lie, they'll do it and always justify it based on national security or sometimes their own political interests. And we're just potted plants out here. And this is a very nasty trend, and it's why the U.S. Congress currently has an approval rating of 9%. So it, at some point, the media, given these kind of mainstream uh, hooks to hang their reportage on, and by mainstream hooks, I mean this is this is the White House set this up. I didn't create this. This isn't a petition on my website. This is on the White House website. This is their program. And so this is sitting right there, and millions of people, including people from overseas as well as members of our military and intelligence community and what have you, go to that site. And so it's, it's right there for anybody to see and read. This is mainstream. And so if the reporters decide that they want to engage this and they start asking just the obvious question I think the the truth embargo wouldn't last a month hasn't the problem always been that all the movers and shakers and all those people own the media so hasn't, hasn't it always been the big problem they basically can tell the media to shut up not that simple um, people in this petition for instance they don't own the media Hillary Clinton doesn't own the media she's not even wealthy by Wall Street standards Bill Clinton doesn't uh, Leanne Panetta John Podesta they don't own the media Bill Richardson Albert Gore he's a public official oh, okay they're not they have money they're not they're not poor by any means none of them but probably the poorest there is John Gibbons so they're not big shot uh, Wall Street moguls none of that they're public officials now they're there are other people that own the media without question. Certainly the high-end media is overly consolidated and owned by corporations, some of which are actually defense contractors like DGE. So that is an issue, but there's a lot of media out there now, as you can imagine. So this idea that, well, nobody will, nobody is going to ask them questions because they're being told not to directly, it's, it's, it's the truth embargo, which has been around right. now for six decades. It's virtually institutionalized. It's a reflexive thing. The, the editor goes, oh, oh, uh, some astronaut said that the extraterrestrial presence is real well, you know, probably just had a couple of drinks, whatever. It's the same old thing. Right. So the media has, has, is, you know, when the media went along with the truth embargo during the Cold War, particularly in the early days, the 50s and 60s, I mean, I have a little respect for them there. Uh, the government had huge concerns, I'm sure, about the implications of the ET reality exploding into the scene. Uh, at the same time, you know, the Soviet Union was building lots of nukes that they were more than capable of raining down upon our cities. They had a real problem, and, and, and the media kind of went along with that. The media went along with a lot of government stuff, certainly during World War II and during the Cold War. 
It's all national security. The media now, I don't have so much respect for. The, the truth embargo, I mean, the uh, Cold War's been over since 91, and now they don't even have to get any memos about this. It's just they just do it right out of ignorance right. and laziness. And they're falling down in a number of areas. We're not getting the, the coverage and the challenge uh, of state policies and government actions that, that we should have in order for things to work out right. Fourth estate is, is not doing its job. Now, they can start at any time. My job is to get them to do their job, is to find a way to get them out of their stupor, get them out from under the hypnotic trance they've been and with respect to the extraterrestrial issues. All right. And doing some investigation, doing some real coverage. And I can assure you that if they do, and it would, and I, don't, I don't mean all of them, even just a, a few en- entities, a few of the uh, media organizations decide to get serious about this, the truth embargo wouldn't hold up for 30 days. Uh, it just couldn't withstand a significant assault because there's massive evidence for the ET presence. And it's readily available. So the government's in a hopeless position if they're in fact challenged by the political media in the United States. Yeah, they can only deny it so long. Eventually something's going to have to come out. They're going to get to a point where they just can't deny it anymore. Yes, that's right. So is there anything else you wanted to cover, Steve? Uh, yes, there's uh, uh, quite a bit happening. There are several documentary series in the works, one at National Geographic Channel, another at the History Channel. Meanwhile, History Channel is just running dock after dock after dock, including, of course, the Ancient Alien series. There are a number of movies dealing with extraterrestrials slated to come out in the next few months, uh, several more television series. So it's E.T. all the time, 24-7. So the public awareness just grows and grows and grows. The uh, Paradigm Research Group has created a project called World Disclosure Day, which is designated as July the 8th, and people can go to worlddisclosureday.org and, and see about that. And it, we, we're looking for endorsements. We're approaching 5,000 endorsements. The more we get, the more we can, I think, create some activities for next year. In other words, the idea is that assuming disclosure hasn't already happened, uh, July the 8th of next year is a focus for people. They can hold events, they can have meetings, conferences, whatever, whatever and however they want to engage the issue because that would be our day, like Earth Day. Right. You know that Earth Day is a big deal, and a lot of things happen with an environmental slant on that day. Well, Disclosure Day, July the 8th, is intended to be the day for a lot of things to happen with a, with a slant towards ending this truth embargo. So we're looking for people to endorse. We want to get as many as possible, and you can do that very easily. It's an email form. You can do it as a person. You can do it as an organization. You can do it as both at worlddisclosureday.org. So that, that there are conferences pretty much dried up uh, until next year. But Conscious Life Expo, big event in uh, February in, in L.A., I'll be speaking. And it was just announced that there's going to be a women's symposium, a women's UFO, UFO symposium, May 1920 in uh, Glen Rose, Texas. That's about halfway between Crawford, Texas, and Stephenville, just outside of Fort Worth. Uh, all women speakers. Uh, I really encourage people to support that event. Uh, all of it, there's links to this at paradigmresearchgroup.org. You can find them. Oh, okay. You can go browse around there. We can put links on our page uh, too. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, and, and and there's a whole conference section there that lists all the upcoming conferences. Well, it's there uh, as, as soon as DRG learns about them. And not not only that, but it's, it, it it logs uh, and still shows archives all the conferences that going back almost 10 years. So people can kind of see what events have taken place, what events are coming up, and plan their schedule accordingly that's happening and in general there's a lot happening around the world in Brazil and Argentina and Chile uh, in Germany uh, a lawsuit was just successfully completed requiring that the German government release a study they did on this phenomenon that they were trying to withhold that is an interesting development we're waiting to see what happens there the international activity continues something's bound to break eventually there's just too much attention being called to it uh, I agree I, I based on what I'm, what I'm seeing looking at things globally I just 
just don't see how the truth embargo can make it through the summer of next year. I just don't see how it can do it. It may. It's lasted 64 years. It's just getting tougher and tougher. Now, if we have a, a significant war breakout and there's a number of possibilities there or a terrorist nuclear attack, whatever, that could derail things. And that's why disclosure needs to get done as quickly as possible. It's why we need funding for this advocacy work. Not because disclosure won't eventually happen. Obviously, it will. But it needs to happen as soon as possible so that we are in the post-disclosure world when the next episodes of bad human behavior take place and perhaps we will handle them in a different fashion. Can, can people go to your website, idea. Steve, if they want to donate and help the cause? Uh, well, uh, Paradigm Research Group has a support page there and PayPal and all that, so if they wanted to support PRJ, they certainly can go there and do that. Uh, there is no limit to how you know, anyone can do that. It's not limited to U.S. citizens. Anybody can, can donate to Paradigm Research Group. It is not a charity. It is not a 5013C. It is not a nonprofit, though it operates pretty much as a nonprofit. So there are really no restrictions, restrictions at all. Uh, it's really great to get you updated on this, and let's maybe do another broadcast maybe a couple weeks into December, uh, see where the petition is, uh, and refresh people so they still have a chance to, to sign before the end of the month. So we have the best chance of getting that 25000 figure. Yeah, it sounds good. Just let me know when you want to be on again, and we'll put you back on. Or if something exciting <laughs> finally breaks, get a hold of us right away, and we'll get you right on. Thanks, John. I appreciate it, my friend. Okay, take care, Steve. All right, thank you very much, Steve Bassett, everybody. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts, Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp, Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights, 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Com. Are you scared? Welcome back to Thresholds and Other Realms. And with us right now, we have Jerry Weinstock, author of Joyride, How My Late Wife Loved Me Back to Life. How are you doing, Jerry? I'm great, John. Thanks for having me on. No problem. You want to tell everyone about your book? It's uh, got quite an interesting title. <laughs> well, it was quite an interesting experience. Uh, I was blessed uh, to have found a great love. Her name was Joy, and we were blissfully happy for 10 years. And when she succumbed to cancer, I was devastated. I didn't know if I wanted to go on living. That's how bad, or how inconsolable my grief was. And then a remarkable thing happened. She began to communicate with me from the other side, afterlife, heaven, whatever you want to call it, uh, at first in words and then in visions and dreams. And ultimately, and this is the really wild part of it, she found a way to literally love me back to life. You remember the movie Ghost? Yes, yeah, I do. Well, in that last scene, I think, Patrick Swayze, who's the ghost, uses Whoopi Goldberg's body, she's the medium, to kiss Demi Moore. Right. Uh, Joy found someone, a willing medium, if you will, through whom she could literally love me back to life. And these encounters, sacred sexual encounters, uh, which 
I called the rites of joy happened ten times over the course of a year, and at the end of the year, my grief was gone. It's an amazing story. That's actually what I pictured when I was reading the, the little thing you sent me about your book. I'm like, well, this reminds me of Ghost. That's what it sounded like to me, too. Oh, yeah. And, it, and not only that, but it's it, it, like Ghost in many more ways. It also began with a murder, but that's something maybe we'll get into a little later. Or do you want to get into it now? doesn't matter. Any way you want to go, you, you got the floor. Well, um, in 1983 in Los Angeles, California, uh, a young teenager by the name of Bruce Lister uh, was convicted of murdering his mother in their home in Los Angeles. And his father, Bob Lister, married Joy, my late wife. He was her previous husband. Mm -hmm. And Bob Lister was so tormented by the law, by the murder of his wife. This had been in all the papers in Los Angeles and Southern California. It was a very, uh, he was an upstanding lawyer, Bob Lister. He was president of the Kiwanis Club. Uh, he was a former Marine, you know, a real straight arrow. And this tragedy that hit his family drove him, this very straight arrow again, to attempt to contact the spirit of his dead wife to find out who killed her. Uh -huh. And in doing that, he opened himself up to his own guide. And when he passed in 1995, he began to communicate with Joy. Uh, he, she spoke to him almost daily for two and a half years. She wrote a book about it, her own memoir, and that's called Love Ever After, How My Husband Became My Spirit Guide. And in the course of those communications with the afterlife, she said to him one day, I think I'm ready to meet a real man in the flesh here. Would you mind? And he told her, no, I'll help you. And he gave her a 12-step program to find new love. Okay. She used it for she used it for six weeks, and she met me, and we fell madly in love. But of course we did, because we were a match made in heaven, literally. You know, you yeah. heard the term match made in heaven? Yeah. Oh, this was a literal match made in heaven. So that's how I was brought into the story. Meanwhile, Bruce Lisker is in prison for life. Uh, Joy and I have a wonderful 10 years together. She passes. I'm devastated. She communicates to me, leads me on a healing journey over the course of a year. Three weeks after I finished the first draft of Joyride, my book, How My Late Wife Loved Me Back to Life, federal judge in California overturned Bruce Lisker's conviction. And after spending 26 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit, he is released and he comes home to live with me because oh, that's I'm his stepfather. Yes. And while he's living here, and remember, this is someone who has, when he was out initially, there were in the early 80s, no credit cards, cell phones, no internet, etc. It was a very interesting, he was kind of like Rip Van Winkle, been asleep for 26 years. Interesting to have him living with me and mentoring him, showing him how to get a, you know, fill up a tank of gas with a credit card and all of those kinds of things. As he lived here and began to take his first step to rebuilding his life, I began to see the story, our story, in a larger context. And I saw how amazingly, out of this murder 26 years ago and this miscarriage of justice, two memoirs, not one, but two memoirs mm -hmm. of life after death communication have been generated. So I started to call that the joyful redemption, sort of after the Shawshank redemption. I'm still, every time I tell somebody about it, I'm still amazed at, at it, that uh, this, this terrible tragedy, it's sort of like a lotus growing out of the mud, they say. Yes. A terrible tragedy where a mother is murdered and the son is convicted wrongly of the crime uh, produces this, these two memoirs about life after death and eternal love. And the amazing thing is that Bruce Lisker, who, by the way, you know, they, the 48 Hours Mystery did an hour on him, an episode on his case uh, this past year. And there are several. Uh, when he was released and people met him for the first time, they were just stunned that he had, he seemed so unscathed by his 26 years in prison. Yeah. And he's a thoughtful, uh, funny, uh, you know, just a great guy. And people just
just used to say to me on the side, can't believe he spent two and a half decades in prison since he was a teenager. Uh, and amazingly, this past August 13th, the second anniversary of his release from prison, he was married in a three-day fairytale wedding to a wonderful woman. And it looks like his life is just turning out absolutely wonderfully. That's and that uh, this, this, uh, this joyful redemption is not just about the uh, two memoirs that emerged from it, but about the life that he and story and things he's going to do with the rest of his life. So anyway, that's the other connection to go. Right. Uh, and as far as you go, I mean, before your wife made this connection, you were absolutely devastated at this point, right? Oh, yeah. I, I uh, you know, I first of all, again, I have to reiterate, I there was such a great love between us. And again, I think it's possibly because we were this match made in heaven. I'd never, I, I'd had some, I've been married before, I've had some very satisfying and wonderful relationships, but this was beyond anything I had ever dreamt of. I mean, we were we were so happy that we adapted the 12 step, created a workshop called 12 Steps to Finding Your Soulmate, and we taught this workshop to people in a full day intent, and that's a learning annex as an introduction, uh, to help other people find the love of their dream because we were so happy. But the thing is, when you have a big love, then you have a big loss. Yes, and true. And when I lost her, I was, I felt as if a part of me had been amputated. I felt like I was the, you know, I felt like I was a ghost in my own life. I, you say that I'd been exiled to planet grief, where the gravity is ten times heavier, and the, uh, and it takes so much effort to even turn the corners of your mouth up into a smile. Uh, it was a, it, it was, there were days that I didn't know if I wanted to go on living, literally. And then she began to communicate with me, and started to lead me in, on the healing journey, uh, which wasn't just about the sex. I mean, there were, she told me at one point that I needed to be held, and the, so I, when people said to me, my friend, what can we do for you? It wasn't easy at first, but I, I listened to her, and I knew that I had to act what I had been told, so I would say to them, hold. And uh, I live in Southern California, and my community of friends are kind of a touchy-feely crowd, so most of them uh, said, sure. And we would move the pillows on the couch aside and lie down, and they would embrace me, and we would breathe together for five minutes, for ten minutes, fifteen minutes sometimes, and it was incredibly, incredibly healing. Uh, and she told me many other things. I mean, that's why I wrote an entire book. Uh, right. The uh, journey was extraordinary, and it gave me, it taught me many things with uh, keys, I call them, to healing law. Not everyone, most likely, is going to experience uh, having the sexual connection with their departed loved one. That was a unique experience between the two of us. Well, i got to say, that's, that's the first I've ever heard of that, and I've been involved in paranormal for a long time, so you got me on that one. Well, that's, you know, it's funny. Since I've been talking about it, a lot of people have stepped forward and said that they had had kind of different kinds of experiences, which which I will get to in just a second. I just wanted to finish what I was saying, and that is that she gave me keys to healing loss, which are applicable to anyone who grieves the loss of a loved one. And I was very inspired by my experience. Uh, you know, I have been uh, a writer. I had books published by Simon & Schuster. I was on the Donahue show when that was Oprah. I've been in movies. I started a cable network. I've done some things in the world, and I had, I'm very, I was so inspired by what I had been through that I wanted to share it with other people who are grieving loss. So I've, um, I'm writing actually a forthcoming book about healing loss in which I share some of the keys that I was given. Now, back to uh, had mentioned about you'd never heard of anything like this. Uh, I was very reluctant to go public with it because I've been in the world. I know, <laughs> I know how people will relate to it. I mean... I 
Right. So the truth is, had I not experienced it myself, I would have a hard time believing it. So I can understand people being skeptical, but I did experience it, and I, you know, and it was a kind of miracle, and so I feel I have to testify to it. Right. Uh, I was debating whether to publish this book, and one evening, I was at a conference about grief, and I'm down in the in the bar at the end of you know end of the day, and a lot of people are just uh, having some drinks and just relaxing after one of these seminars. And a woman sits down next to me and introduces herself, and she's a massage therapist. And I think to myself, well, let me run it by her. So I tell her about my story and about the rights of joy, and and I said to her, do you think I'm crazy? And she said to me, no. And I said, oh, really? And she said, no, because it happened to me. And she proceeds to tell me that she was giving a massage to a fairly young widow, mid-30s, who'd lost her husband quite young. The while she was massaging this woman who was on the table, she suddenly had the sense there was a young man in the room. She had this, she saw him in some sense, and she immediately thought that her husband. And he communicated to her telepathically, she said, and he asked if he could use her body to work on his wife. Wow. And she said, okay. And she sort of, she said she sort of moved aside, came into her body. He began to work on his wife, whatever that means. And he, she said she noticed that the woman who never moved or, or, or responded that much to massages was now moaning and was moving around. Writhing is maybe too strong a word, but was moving around to her husband's touch. Mm -hmm. He finished, he left her body, and the massage therapist then told the woman on the, on the table, okay, it's time to turn over. The woman turned over and she has tears streaming down her face. And she says to the massage therapist, I, I had the, I had the strangest experience. I thought my husband was here with me. And the massage therapist debated with herself for a moment whether to tell her what had happened because the woman she knew was a Southern Baptist Christian and that knowing this kind of experience was really against her religion. Yes. But she felt she had to tell her the truth. So she told her, yes, your husband was here. And she told her what had happened. The woman was so horrified that she told her to leave immediately stopped the massage, and never called her for massage again. Hmm. When I heard that, I thought, oh, I'm right. It's shocking to people. It's going to, you know, I'm going to really risk ridicule. But Joy, who still communicates to, with me, not quite in the same way as much, and I don't ask and need it as much, but she kept prodding me all the time, put it out, to put it out. And she, and she was saying, you didn't experience this for yourself alone. You experienced it so that it could be shared with the world, and the world would would uh, have their ideas about life and death, love and loss, and even sex expanded in some. That's interesting. Yeah, that actually does. That's say that's unique. When I got to say, when I first talked to you, after you told me your story, I'm thinking like, wow, I've never heard of that before. I told my producer, he's like, that's interesting. He goes, yeah, you got to get him on. Yeah, and since then, by the way, and I don't want to, you know, many other, not many, but some people have come forward with not similar stories, but stories about real connection with. Uh, actually, I was giving a talk at a sex and culture series that hosted by a renowned anthropologist here in Los Angeles recently, and. In the question and answer period, uh, a woman stepped forward and introduced herself as the person whose life Ghost the movie was based on. Oh, cool. And she proceeded to tell her story, which was quite incredible in itself. So there's, I think it, I mean, I don't think it's a common occurrence, but I think that in the same way that I was reluctant to talk about, I kept these rights, these rights of joy, which I call these sexual encounters, secret uh -huh. from everyone uh, for quite a while and was very reluctant to share them because I knew people would think I was out of my mind and I didn't want to this very sacred and profound experience uh, have it be held up to judgment like that uh, but uh, I 
in the end, I thought, I have to share it. It was a miracle, and it needs to be testified to. Yeah, it's, I'm sure that other people have had encounters like that, too. But like you said, it's kind of a quiet thing where people don't want to say anything like that because they don't want people to think they're crazy. Oh, yeah. I've been at conferences and spoken about just communicating with the afterlife in general, and then people will come up to me and say, you know, I haven't really told anybody this, but after my grandfather passed or... I haven't really told anybody this, but when my mother died, uh, and they have stories, they have stories, but they're reluctant to speak about it because of the general, in our culture, there's a general, even though surveys say that 74% of Americans believe in life after death, the communication with life after death has a, a certain, is a fringe kind of phenomenon, I think, for the mainstream. Right. So people are reluctant. They don't want to, they don't want to appear different. But, you know, it's very interesting because I, this was my first experience of communication with the F. Life. And I began to research it a little bit. And it seems that throughout history, all cultures, ancient cultures, tribal cultures, indigenous peoples, everyone had some sense and belief in an unseen realm, a spirit realm, if you will. Right. That there was more to existence than just what we can see. And it's sort of only in these last 400 years or so since the Enlightenment in Europe uh, where the scientific worldview took hold and wonderful things have happened since then. The pendulum sort of swung to the other side and so it was sort of seeing is believing and that kind of, I think, put people in a box. And I think now what's happening is science itself, you know, quantum mechanics and physics and all of that is kind of swing, starting to swing back the other way with string theory and chaos theory and all, quantum theory and all that stuff. And, and, and it's just, in a strange way, very, very advanced science is starting to confirm what uh, a lot of spiritual teachers have been saying for millennia. What was your actual view on the paranormal before this happened? I mean, did you realize it was instantly your wife trying to contact you, or was this kind of a new thing for you, and you didn't believe it yourself for a while? Well, when you say the paranormal, it's a big subject. When you mean about, you're talking specifically about communicating with the afterlife, or are you talking about just uh, UFOs and other kinds of things? Well, I'm just meaning the paranormal in general. I mean, some people are, you know, don't believe in anything like that whatsoever. I just mean, what were your views uh, in paranormal in general, you know, before this happened? Okay, if I was writing a movie, script, uh, you you would make me a skip. It's a much bigger shift, and it's a lot more conflict. Uh, but it, this it isn't a movie. This isn't fiction. This is fact. And the truth was, I was very open to any and everything. I, you know, you you had Suzanne Taylor on, uh, the crop circle lady. Correct. Uh, I, I have loved crop circles since uh, I first got was introduced to them in the very early 90s. And in fact, my uh, my corporation, I took as a logo one of the crop circles. Uh, I forget the name of it, but it's the DNA Helix one. Yeah, I'm very well aware of that one myself, too. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe you use it in uh, on, on your website. But uh, so I, I was open to anything. I knew that Joy had talked to her husband for two years and wrote her book about it, Love Ever After. And the in information that she got from him was extraordinary. And about the murder and about the case and about the metaphysical perspective of why this tragedy happened to him. Uh, so, and I lived with it. And in fact, <laughs> this is kind of funny. Uh, some producers were interested in a film, making a film about Joy and I after her book came out. Because, uh, because they thought there was an interesting kind of, remember the movie Topper? Yes. You know, that there's a ghost in the relationship. Correct. Yeah, I and, remember that. Well, she was still talking to her spirit guide, Bob, her previous husband. And they would ask me, aren't you jealous? Isn't it weird? 
And I told him, no, I think it's fantastic. You know, whenever she would... Uh, Bob died of emphysema. He had been a chain smoker all his life. And uh, the last two or three years of his life, he had been take, rushed to the hospital to get him back breathing, I think, 72 times in three years. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, it was kind of a, a weekly, bi-weekly thing, apparently. And, and Joy said that's sort of how it all started. Uh, on the 73rd time, in the middle of the night, he would have trouble breathing. They had an ox He had oxygen, but it didn't help. And they called 911. They came. They got him. She would get her stuff together at 2, 3 in the morning and then go down to the car and follow the ambulance to the hospital. And when she got into the car, she heard a voice behind her, very loud, saying, I thought I could help you from here more than from over there. She turned around, and there was no one in the car. And she said it was the strangest thing. And then she, when she drove, when she got to the hospital, they informed her that Bob had died en route. She, you know, she had... And, and, and he, she was talking to him throughout our relationship at times. Uh, she would she would smell cigarette in our home, and we neither of us smoked. And she said, "That's Bob." And she would close her eyes and sort of get silent, and go in within, and then she would open her eyes a minute or two later, smiling, and sort of tell me what he told her. And he was uh, she often went in you know she, dealing with cancer and dealing with other things in life. She all often got guidance from him. So these producers thought you know interesting kind of threesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they sort of developed the movie. It never really got very far, but so it was very much a part of our lives that I could do it. I didn't really think I could do it or, you know, I, I didn't know, but at, when I, I was so desperate in my grief and at, for anybody who's gone through profound loss, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, the, I think that's what the name Journey Through the Valley of the Shadow of Death is, grief. Uh, in that valley, you're really, um, you need help. And so I was willing to get help from anywhere and uh, Joy uh, came, communicated with me and loved me back to life, as I said. That's actually quite an amazing story. I say I've never heard that before, but that's truly amazing. Sounds like you're a little... Uh, have, let me ask you, have you had communication with Vietnam? Not direct as far as in voice or anything, but I mean the one thing, you pipe tobacco. When my grandfather died, we constantly would smell pipe tobacco. The cherry pipe tobacco he smoked. That seemed to be a common occurrence because I have a big paranormal website, too, and uh, a lot of people say they'll smell pipe tobacco, cigars, cigars, cigarettes from a loved one for some reason, which is kind of odd because you, you think they're smoking in the afterlife. You know, I never quite understood that myself. Well, you know, it, I think it's more as a, you know, there are certain things that they, they're limited as far as what they what they can do. And some people have talents of some kind and other kinds. Some people can turn off lights on and off. You know, you've heard of people experiencing that a lot. Yeah, uh, some people can play with your computer. Uh, well, you've heard of that. I was in a home once uh, that I'm I, sure. I was in a home I rented once where the grand mother that owned it had died the night before and I was actually in the house by the next day it's a long story and things in that house used to move around I'd rearrange stuff next day it'd be back and it got to the point where it wasn't scary it was almost funny I would move something the next day it's back where she used to keep it it was it, it was an interaction and it was the whole time I lived there but it was actually entertaining right and it's interesting that you didn't get frightened by it and you didn't start to see it as it being haunted but rather you took it as this was a sort of a wink and a sign for from your loved one that, hey, I'm here and I'm around and uh, I'm okay. Uh, I think a lot of, uh, I think, I'm not saying all, but I think many ghost stories uh, are projections that we put on communications which are not necessarily malevolent, but we, we, and our fear, we 
treat them that way. I mean, you could just as easily gotten frightened by it. Oh, yeah. Well, my, right? my background, I was brought up around paranormal. It doesn't phase me. But, yeah, a lot of people probably had an absolute stroke when, uh, you know, you put something in the kitchen and you come back a minute later and it's on the other side of the kitchen. Right. Yeah, uh, I think, you know, people talk about 2012 and what 2012 is. Uh, my feeling, and comes, I guess, out of my experience, uh, you know, the end of the Mayan calendar and the world is going to end and so on. Uh, I, and, you know, I think the translations and the understandings of the Mayan calendar uh, meant the world as we know it will end. And I think, to me, what that means is that there's going to be a thinning of the veil between dimensions mm-hmm. and that the communication with other dimensions is going to increase and become commonplace. And when that happens, the world as we know it ends because we're no longer in a, in a world where seeing is believing. We're in a much more expanded world that has many dimensions, uh, sort of like, uh, you know, infinite dimensions, sort of like a, uh, a piano keyboard with 88 keys, you know, and, and different octaves. And, uh, we, you know, other dimensions are here, except they're on a vibratory frequency level that we can't perceive it. In the same way that visible light is only a small portion of the spectrum of electromagnetic frequencies, right? Correct. I'm a big believer in multiple dimensions, too. I mean, I tend to think there's a bunch of them all side by side, and occasionally the veil is thinner, or however you want to put it, and things intertwine that normally wouldn't. Right. So let me ask you, because I haven't been in the field the way you are, that's my feel. One of the things I think is going to happen with what 2012 means, I think it's a thinning of veils, and the end of the world as we know it, a seeing is believing world. What what do you make of that? Since you've talked to many people and you've interviewed many people, what's your take? Uh, actually, there's a lot of different theories on that. Actually, it's going to be an incredible hot radio topic for all of next year. Hopefully to the 31st and not just the 21st, I'm hoping. I don't know. I'm, I'm getting people's theories from all the way that the world's going to explode with volcanoes and asteroids to uh, basically nothing's going to happen, but it's just an end of their calendar. I actually don't know. Uh, I'm kind of looking forward to it. I'm not worried about it because the way I look at it is whatever happens, happens, if it happens. I agree. I agree. There's not, you know, ultimately, uh, my experience has, you know, I knew this from meditation, from I've been doing yoga most of my life and Tai Chi. Uh, so you can't say I've been on a, quote, spiritual path. And I, I knew that we don't, that death is an illusion to some extent. We transition out of the body into some other uh, spiritual form. The place we went to, we came from, <laughs> where were we? Before we were born, we go back to that place. And uh, But my experience has given me such a kind of embodied and visceral uh, experience of the fact that uh, joy is still present. Her soul is certainly still present. And even though I don't have her physical form, missed her dearly, though I'm, I'm, I'm come to bless not only our love but our loss. Did you... Uh... Like, your wife, you know, communicated with you. Has Did she ever, like, tell you where she is or how she is or ever, you know, anything about, like, I'd the afterlife? Her. I asked her, you know, of course. Uh, mostly I was in such pain. I just wanted to know what do I do next? What should I do? What should I do? How do I feel this awful pain? Uh, but on my good days, I would uh, sort of say, uh, where are you and what are you doing? And she would, <laughs> she would say to me, and I would say, what's it like there? And she would say, there's everything here uh, for any interest. It's more than you can possibly imagine, and I can't tell you you about it because it would be like you have no 
way to you have no way to conceive of it. It's beyond your comprehension. It's like talking, telling, talking about sex to a child. So she huh. said, "There's it just that's one of the that's one of the ironies and the and the kind of beautiful mysteries that all these things cannot be communicated because we're limited by our by words and by our 3D mentality. And it's very very difficult to uh, describe things that are beyond words and those realms and dimensions are beyond words." I, I used to say to her, "Because I want to, you know I, I want your listeners to understand that I doubted it even when I was having the experience. I was questioning it all." All the time, I kept saying to myself, "I'm making this up. I'm having a delusion. I'm, you know, I'm going crazy." Uh, and then some extraordinary confirmation would appear, answering the question. And I would, you know, sometimes I said to Joy, uh, "Am I talking to myself?" <laughs> and she would say, "Yes, <laughs> you are. <laughs> it can be no other way because we are all one." Right. She... Or another time, I said, "Am I, you know, is this? Am I just making this? Am I?" Am I talking to myself another time? And she said, she said, yes. In the beginning, you are. And it's like priming a pump, but it's a beacon to me. It calls me. And very soon, you're no longer talking to yourself. I'm here. Has she but ever said that perhaps, I mean, are there other people there with her? Did she ever give any clue that, you know, like everyone is where she is? Or if, if she is just there? Or did, was she ever able to give you any idea like that? I'm not quite sure what you're asking. Well, I mean, like you say everyone. You mean people I know, or everyone? Uh, well, uh, basically, I'm not sure ev what you're ev asking. everybody that's departed. I mean, you know, is is everybody in this reality that she's in, or whatever you want to call it, or is this just somewhere she's in, or you, you follow what I mean? You know, is there is there an afterlife? She's saying, or you know, something to that extent. I think. I mean, I think what the impression I get is that there's. You know that the soul. We're all connected to souls and over souls, group souls. The forms in the afterlife look very different than the individual people we are in our individual bodies in here in 3D physical form. And in that other realm, people are learning and having experiences and doing things and resting and having vacation I mean but not in the in the way we think of it uh, they come in we come in to this dimension to have the experience of duality you know to have the experience of pain and pleasure hot and cold life and death there are you can't have those kinds of things in the realm of the spirit right. you know there uh, so and people you know I think supposedly I think we choose the lives that we are living and the reason why people have I mean I think we choose lives uh, but you know something <laughs> I think it's all I really don't know to be honest I mean it's it's sense uh, there's intimation remember everything that I'm hearing from joy it's also being filtered through my my limited perspective Perspective. So, uh, who am I to say what it is? We'll find out. All of us. Right. Think the one that's really lousy about you know that the one problem about living is that we all die. None of us gets out of it alive. Yeah, I know. We all know the ending of the story. Uh huh. And so, you know, I think a lot of I think a lot of all these experiences. Yes, they're great having the experience, but I think that if we if they don't if we can't somehow digest them and integrate them and learn from them to make our life here more fulfilling, then we're just collecting experience. And I don't know if that's really the the most profitable um, profitable is not the word I mean, but the best way to you know the most we can get out of these experiences. Right. You know, hopefully, my experience of being loved back to life and about moving through grief and healing loss and having the great 
love and that made in heaven that I had with joy uh, is to give, allow me and teach me to even live better and love better. Uh, I want to tell you something um, interesting, a gift that Joy gave me. I just took a drink of water. That's okay. <laughs> Before she passed, uh, she wanted to know. We had great communication. I think great communication and great sex, of course, but great communication is a real key to intimacy and a, and a great relationship. And before she was passing, she said she wanted me to tell her how I was feeling. And that was, she, that was, that was the worst thing she could have possibly asked me. I mean, I, I was so primed. My prime directive was to protect her, to make her passing as easy as, as, as possible. Uh, and for, for me now to burden her with my loss, with my grief, was just something that I, it was, you know, don't ask me to do it. But she did. She yeah. said, I have to. You have to tell me how you feel, because otherwise our communication has stopped and I'm dead already. So one morning, we're sitting in the living room. Uh, I got out a bottle of vodka because I needed a lot of help to override this prime directive. And I started to tell her what I was crying about in the shower every morning. I told her I didn't think I, you know, life would be worth living and how much I would grieve her and how wonderful our relationship had been and how fulfilling, etc., etc. And I began to drink and I began to cry. And I began to drink and I began to cry more. <laughs> and I went on a crying jag for a couple of hours. When it was all over, she said to me, if my death destroys your life, then our love was a poison pill, and I won't accept that. That's interesting. So, you swear to me, she said to me, you swear to me, for my sake, she said, I mean, for her sake, you swear to me that you'll be open to a new love and new life, even better than what we've had. By that time... Uh, you know, I had been waterboarded from crying so much, I would have sworn to anything. So I swore. Months later, she's gone, and I don't know if I want to continue living. I remembered the only thing that got me out of bed was my promise to her that our love wouldn't be a poison pill, that for her sake, she said, I won't accept the karma of destroying your life, so you will heal for my sake. She gave me a great gift because... I didn't, for myself at that time, in my grief, I didn't give a damn what happened to me. But for her, I would do anything, even heal my grief. It's an so, amazing story. I mean, very touching, too. I mean, I can feel it just having you say it. I mean, it's, it's truly amazing. Yeah, it was a great gift. And it's the kind of thing that many people who lose a loved one don't have. They don't have permission to heal. And what happens in their grief process often, uh, what I'm discovering because I'm working with people who are bereaved and have lost a loved one, is that they, com they confuse the pain of their grief with the degree of their love. And the more they feel their pain, the more in pain they are, means it is a sign of their love. And so they're very reluctant to give up their pain. And they work it out, and you know, slowly, but they're in they, they endure pain for much longer than they necessarily perhaps would have had their loved one given, made them swear to heal their grief because then they would have done it for them. Yeah, she gave me many gifts and uh, I hope to share them with, uh, with others.
Well, actually, a story like this might help someone going through the same kind of thing, too, because sometimes when you lose someone, the grief is just overwhelming, and you just want your life to end, and that's all there is to it. All right, thank you very much, Jerry Weinstock, author of Joyride. Check out his book. We'll be right back to listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Well, here we are. Welcome back to Thresholds into Other Realms. And Des and I have an interesting story to tell about our wonderful week in the world of ufology. Our ufological trip to here to there. You actually made one in the automobile. Tell us about that wonderful trip and the interesting gentleman you met. Maybe you just give us his first name. Yes, uh, I, um, I took a trip down to uh, Morton, uh, just the other side of Peoria, um, about an hour and a half away from here. Uh, I was e- emailing backwards and forwards to a chap called Cecil, and he had um, some experiences. He, he's actually in a, a, a care home, a care center, uh, residential care. He, he's an elderly gentleman. Um, he's not very well at all. He's plugged into all kinds of um, uh, technology to keep him going. But I decided to uh, go and pay a visit rather than try and play phone tag with him because it's difficult for him to get to a phone and uh, spent a couple of hours with him. Uh, very, very nice gentleman. Uh, very uh, forthright, honest, um, upstanding chap. And uh, he, he told me a couple of um, interesting stories from his uh, his past uh, started off in 1970 where he had a, an experience as a security guard um, one night and um, he was actually having his lunch at like three o'clock in the morning and he, he noticed outside the door the glass door that it was particularly bright in the parking lot so he went and had a look uh, parking lot floodlights are just above it was a huge light uh, about three times the size of the the normal parking lot light and he's looking at this dumbfounded didn't know what to make of it um, lit up the entire area and then it started to dim down to a, uh, a, a smaller size and then it went out and five lights then came on five red lights all in a row this was taking place at about 50 feet above the ground and uh, then these red lights started pulsating and then they moved off silently behind some trees uh, it was uh, late autumn so there was no leaves on the trees so he could see through um, these lights were pulsating and he saw them move behind the, the trees and they just absolutely vanished just disappeared left him dumbfounded didn't know what to do uh, so he reported it um, now the problem was, uh, his superiors told him basically to uh, 
forget about it. Uh, but the rest of the crew that he was working with um, ridiculed him to the point where he quit his job. Um, uh, he couldn't take it anymore. And uh, being an honest gentleman, you know, he, he didn't want to tell lies. So he, uh, you know, he, his life was made miserable because of it. Um, obviously, it was in a bit more depth than that, but that's just the, uh, the outline of the story. Now, he and his wife also had a sighting one day on their way uh, driving through the country. And it was, his wife described it as an upside down um, uh, a, a, a cereal bowl about 200 feet above a river. They were just coming up to a river, uh, about 200 feet above it, and just sitting there, silver, uh, quite large, uh, didn't know what to make of it as they went down a dip and turned a corner they lost sight of it for a second but when they went um, to have a look for it again after this dip the thing had gone but they both independently had seen it and uh, you know that kind of uh, took them back a bit there too now these these people are rather elderly and, and they didn't have uh, very good memories of exact dates and times so it was quite difficult to nail that down but um, well, the, another they, experience he had. They well, the thing yeah, was they that. they never forget the, the the important details because these are truly Kodak moments moments you know, and um, you know here. By the way, I was I meant to ask you, did he try to take you in the game of uh, uh, pinochle or anything? <laughs> no, no, the poor. Poor fella's hands were uh, very arthritic and, and, and twisted into, oh, into wow. awful shapes. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, he, he was an exceptionally nice gentleman, but, um, you know, uh, he's in a pretty bad way. Now, here you get people in their last days of the very last breath that they may hold tell stories about UFOs. Now, if this were a deathbed confession, you know, in the latter days of one's life. It's taken very seriously. It's upheld quite, uh, you know, at the higher uh, the higher regards uh, as far as wet witness te testimony goes. And uh, this can't be uh, observed or considered any different considering what the man went through. His faculties are intact, correct? Yes, absolutely. He's as sharp as a as a as a as a blade. You know, the the fellow is um, um, very. He's mentally astute. He's very very switched on fellow. Um, his voice was very weak. Uh, I was having a hard time picking him up on the microphone. Um, but you know, um, he was telling me that when he um, when he gets better and uh, when he gets out of there, he would like to join Mufon. Uh, because he's very interested and uh, follows move on uh, through the programs on the TV. Uh, but uh, all honesty, I, I, I'm not even sure he's going to make it out of there. He's he, he's, he was pretty pretty sick fellow. Hmm. Well, you mentioned he had uh, some other sightings too. Uh, tell us more about them. Yeah, there was another one he had. Um, he was this was back in. Um, uh, again, late 60s, uh, he was in a truck with a friend of his and they were driving rural Peoria 
doing out out the woods somewhere. They were driving on a country lane. As he went past a bunch of trees, now this was summertime, so the trees were pretty full. As he went past a bunch of trees, he was a passenger, he looked off to his right because he noticed a light behind the trees. Now the trees then eventually cleared and he had an uninterrupted view of a field. This field was fairly large and above the field at about 50 to 100 feet was this very large disc silver object with this one, um, not a beam of light, but it was it, it, it was like a, a, a column of light coming down. Um, he could just make the light column coming down, but the area underneath this craft was lit up, but there was a definite round light circle on the field itself. And uh, he drew me a picture of what it looked like. And basically, it looked like um, uh, a three-quarter disc, but the, the, the one side of the disc was scalloped out. So it looked like it's concaved in. So it, it almost looked like an arrowhead. But uh, he said he saw this thing absolutely unbelievable. Now, if you were okay, now if you were to describe that, an arrowhead, was it a, 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 a rounded arrowhead? at the point yes and the back of it was concave yes. now this is uh, correct, a correct. this is the, the also a picture of it a picture of a very similar such object was taken uh, by i believe his name is james rhodes and um and that was in 47 um a, was i think he even was a police officer but he, i i forget now exactly but anyways the uh, Freeport, Illinois sighting was of that exact type of configuration uh, or shape, I should say, uh, of an object. And uh, that was, let's see, three years ago? Yeah, two or three years ago. Um, okay. It's a common object. In other words, the... Um, shape of that object is not that unusual but what's it is unusual in the sense that it's not your typical flying saucer per se or disc or orb or even for that matter triangle it's it is something far more unique and something when people bring up these more unique characteristics it adds to me uh, a little more intrigue to it and possibly credence Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the the picture he drew, um, it almost made the hair of my neck stand up. I, I looked at that and I did recognize it too from um, previous uh, reports and sightings and stuff that I've read in the past. I looked at that and it's so unusual and distinctive, and um, it it's kind of you have to have a pretty good imagination to come up with a with a with a structure like that i suppose because most people come up with just the usual well it looked like a disc but this was definitely different and distinctive now um i've had what is it three or four call-ins this week and uh some of them are pretty remarkable you had another case well you had a few cases you were working on one in particular is a possible abduction and uh, we were going through some of that information. And um, one thing we, we, we have to 
do when we do a case or we have to how we have to proceed is um, far more cautious than what people give us credit for and uh, also we have other experts review what we have as far as evidence and um, would you want to touch on some of that information? Sure. Um, it was a young lady, um, this this lady, who submitted a report putting the CMS database, and uh, it was assigned to me. And and it was basically um, uh, just a, a, a straightforward. She took a photograph, didn't know what it was, and um, uh, so I was following up, and I called her. And not a problem. Uh, we dealt with that part. And uh, as I was wrapping up the conversation, she said, do you have a minute? And I went, yeah, sure, no problem. What's up? It went very quiet for about 10 seconds. And then she said, I don't quite know how to tell you this, but um, after she saw the orb that she had reported, um, she said that that night she was in bed uh, asleep and she woke up during the night and in her doorway of her bedroom was a six foot round light just hanging there and the light then just proceeded to get smaller and move away through the door into her living room and then it just disappeared well um, she felt as if she was drugged or um, in a semi-conscious state and so she really just all she did was go back to sleep. In the morning, she woke up and she reckoned that she had three puncture wounds on her thigh. And um, they were very painful. And um, so at this point, I asked her if she actually had any photographic evidence of that. She took a picture. She did. And she sent it over. Um, I asked her, uh, you know, how... How was she feeling and, and is there any medical treatment she needs? Does she need to follow up with a doctor or anything like that? She didn't want to do that. So um, at that point, what I decided to do was say, I tell you what, we're going to, I'm going to call in a, a, a somebody with a higher level of expertise than I have in these cases. And I'll, I'm going to call in my good friend, Sam, and we'll go for a three-way um, conversation and, and, Obviously, Stan will be asking you some stuff that I probably can't even think of at this time. So uh, she was agreeing with that, and uh, we, we've yet to make that phone call. I think we're going to be doing that Monday evening. So uh, it's a very interesting case, and um, I'm just leaving it at that at the moment. So uh, I'm not drawing any conclusions, but we'll, you know, we'll just take it to the next step and find out where to go from there. Earlier today, right after I had spoken to you, a gentleman called and was talking about an experience he had, um, believe it was the last year, uh, no, it was 2007, excuse me, where he had woken up in the middle of the night and was absolutely certain he was staring at two men inside his room wearing black with black glasses. And uh, he reached over pulled out his gun that he had by the side of the bed. He took the safety off, asked them to leave. They just smiled, this smirk, and uh, he pulled the trigger. Nothing happened. 
all of a sudden one of them pointed at him and brought him to his knees and then basically just dropped him entirely. And he says the most aggravating thing with the whole scenario was that they were smirking at him. And uh, he woke up the next morning and uh, found that the uh, safety that he always has on was indeed off. And I found that interesting. And, you know, he has no evidence. Um, he says, but this isn't the only case. And I think I know when it all started. I go, truly, you know, have an idea of something else taking place. And he was a truck driver. And taking a load out of Phoenix, uh, going to, I believe, Denver, he had stopped off at, he gave very good details as to where this location was that he had stopped at. It was a rest area. Not a truck stop, but a rest area. Um, you know, one sanctioned by the uh, um, highway department, obviously, of, of that state. And he says there were four other trucks in the area. Uh, he had he always undressed before he would go to sleep in his cab. He had um, some additional uh, safeguards that no one can get inside the cab. The only way he could get in there is if you bust the windows. Well, he went to he went to sleep under the covers. Wakes up. And there are four little guys, is how he described, and he goes, you'll think I'm crazy, but there's four little beings, uh, two in front of me, two holding my hands, are walking me down to a lake. And he says, all I can remember is saying to them in my mind uh, that I am going to drown. And they says, no, you're going to be all right. And, and he keeps walking, and before he knows He's walking through these multiple levels into this extremely large chamber where four beings are in there looking quite human, uh, blonde hair, blue eyes. And uh, he was just in awe with the size of this craft, at least the compartment he was in. And uh, we didn't finish up the detail as far as what was going on there because uh, there's obviously more to what he recalls, but he had stated that here I woke up the next morning uh, lying on top of my sheets with my clothes on, and I distinctly recalled, as I always do, taking my clothes off, crawling under the sheets, and going to bed. So this was one of a whole series of uh, encounters that he had um, and he feels that he even had possibly encounters as early as the age of three, uh, where his mother said that they don't know how it would happen as a child. They would put him in his crib, and he was unable to get out of his crib. But yet, many a time at night, they'd find him uh, between the two of them lying in bed. He also mentioned that he and his younger, youngest uncle, who was, they were very close in age, I guess his uh, father came from a big family and there was a big span of age there, but what had happened is the young uncle would play soldiers with him, and these tin soldiers, they would go inside uh, 
whatever room it was in a garage um, on the south side of Chicago, and these tin soldiers would move all by themselves. And it startled the, the uncle so bad that he ran out of there and didn't want to talk about or never walk back into that room. So I, I don't know if there was a history of some sort of paranormal activity uh, or what, but something interesting had been going on in that man's life, quite possibly early, and to this day it, it lingers with him to the age of 78. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that. When you said it lingers with him, you know, when I spoke to Cecil, he was um, he relived that moment of his encounter pretty much every day for the last forty years. Um, he lives it over and over again. He says he he felt ecstatic, euphoric, and yet frightened out of his mind at the same time. Um, and he actually felt for quite a while that he that, that he was being watched or there was some somebody going to get him. He had that in, feeling of impending doom that somebody was going to get him. But uh, nobody ever did to his knowledge. So, um, you know, I, I can uh, I can see how that gentleman you've just been speaking about, how uh, how he relives that. It, it's something they never forget. And, and it seems that certain episodes or or certain times in their life, other events take place. Multiple sightings, he's seen a massive craft. Uh, he lives out west in the Plainfield area, and he's seen this massive craft out there. Um, he couldn't believe the size of it. It was twice you know, the size of the two houses next to him, and, and far in the distance, he says, easily a quarter of a mile back and over the trees. And it was just all these lights and just truly unusual. And it just sat there. Then all of a sudden it moved a little bit, and then it shot off at god-awful speed. And he says, you know, I was in the military, seen a lot of things. There is absolutely nothing, nothing that we have that flies anything like that and can do those type of speeds, period. And he says, I say this. Um, you know, the thing is, as you get older, I think some people get braver. And I just hope more people can get brave enough to tell their stories, to, to, to share with us these experiences. And if there's evidence to support it, my God, bring it forward. Um, the inevitable is going to happen anyways. All of us are, are going to leave, like it or not. And uh, it's just what we leave here and we give to, our, to the next generations that is, is going to be remembered. And that's how we will remember them even that much more. Um, I think Cecil was doing a noble deed by doing that. Uh, the other thing is, did you notice that he, he felt very relieved in explaining this to you? One of the things that he felt was um, that he was going to get ridiculed. Um, obviously, he, the ridicule side of things played on his mind for a lot of years, so he kept it under wraps. So basically, he was walking around with a, a, a very, very big secret 
that he couldn't tell anybody for fear of some kind of backlash. But uh, finally, when uh, when he told me about it, he, he was he was all smiles, and it, it was like um, sometimes he couldn't stop him from chatting. He was like a kid at Christmas. So yeah, um, I think he was very much relieved. All right, that was Samaranto and Des Wiston. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit ufo info Com. Welcome back to Thresholds and Other Realms, and with us is Mike O'Clean. How are you doing today, Mike? Hey, John. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, as always. No problem. So what's new with you? Anything? Oh, I got a lot of uh, interesting stuff that I've been planning. Now, a lot of people who are familiar with my work know that I, I wrote uh, The Legends and Lore of Illinois for about four years. So there were 47 issues of that, right, on different haunted places. I decided to kind of take 12 months off, and now I'm looking at doing another 12 issues in 2012. Oh, that's so good. we got, yeah, we got 12 for 2012. And so I just kind of wanted to go over some of the places that I'm going to be writing about. Okay. We got one here. The first one I wanted to do in, in January, we were scheduled to visit, uh, but that never happened. But it was, of course, Munger Road. It's become... We're still going to get there. Well, we, we need to at some point. i got to go and get pictures of the place. Just take but, a picture of any street with a railroad crossing and some trees by it, and no one's going to know the difference. Yeah. Well, they, you know, this was a movie was made about this place recently, and people told me that it was good. So I'm looking forward to that. I know that's going to get a lot of attention. Uh, the Winston Tunnel which I'm going to go into more detail about today. Okay. Uh, Springdale Cemetery in Peoria. I don't know if you've ever been there. Beautiful cemetery. Uh, unfortunately, it was the scene of a murder. Uh, Reed Dunning Memorial Park in Chicago. Or Ursula Bielski's done a lot of research on that place. Uh, Southern Illinois University. The Rose Hotel is uh, one that the Bruce Klein wrote. Did we ever speak with him and his and his wife i don't think so what what did he write yeah he he wrote history mystery and hauntings of southern illinois which uh which i published in Black i don't think Media. we've talked to him i don't believe oh well we'll have to set that up so that's one that he's investigated and he's found some interesting things there uh cave and rock is another one in southern illinois that's uh it was really cool got interesting history there with river pirates buried treasure they used to uh as a sport, they would tie a captive on a horse and then scare the horse and make it run off the cliff into the river. Pirates just know how to have a good time. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, when, you, be... when you do that one, Mike, too, we want you to do it with a pirate voice. I, I will try as much <laughs> okay. as I can. You know, there, there's buried treasure around there. There's supposed to be a lot of ghosts. Uh, it's just going to be an interesting issue. Uh, the Old Stone House, I know we've kind of talked about. It's appeared in a number of my top ten lists. Robinson Woods, a couple of murders nearby. I've heard of Robinson Woods. Is that the one that's in Chicago? Is that where that one is? Yeah, it's technically, I believe, in Norridge. 
Okay. Uh, just, like just outside of Chicago in this sort of western area. And uh, that one, there's an Indian chief, Chi-Chi Pinque, is buried there with his family. The next one up is Help Me Road. That's going to be kind of cool. I love I love that story. The 400th Avenue Bridge is kind of a creepy place. The last issue is going to be the pointing ghost of 24th Avenue out in Moline. And that is it. The final issue of the Legends and Lore of Illinois. I swear to God, I will not write a single one after those, after those 12 come out. And that's it then, huh? Then what are you going to do? Legends and Lore of Indiana? Well, I've thought about expanding, but I mean, I'm going to continue to update my website. Like all this year, I didn't have any new issues, but there's been a lot of articles and things that I posted on, on the website. I'm just going to continue to do that. You've been doing top 10 lists too. Those have actually been pretty good. Oh yeah. The top 10 lists are, are real popular. To this day, the top 10 most hottest ghosts in Illinois is by far the most popular. Is ghost. it really? Oh yeah. Imagine yeah, that. that. It's uh, it is hilarious. So go out there in Radio Land and check it out. The website, of course, is trueillinoishaunts.com. Uh, now I wanted to tell you a little bit more about the Winston Tunnel. I know last year when I went out there, I wanted to do like a live call-in from the scene, but we lost signal out there. It, it's in the middle of the woods in far western Illinois. So my cell phone pooped out on me, and uh, I remember we couldn't do it. You'd need a satellite feed, which is quite costly. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so uh, let me turn on my uh, tour guide voice for a minute in here. At 2,493 feet, the Winston Tunnel is the longest railroad tunnel in Illinois. It was built in 1888 for the Minnesota and Northwestern Railroad, which was a line that ran from Chicago to Minneapolis, Omaha, and Kansas City. It took 350 workmen and $600,000, more than nine months to complete the tunnel, and shortly after, this railroad changed its name to the Great West Railway. And there there have been some confirmed deaths. There was at least one worker is known to have been killed during the construction of the tunnel. And it's so long, if you can imagine this, they had to build a pump house to ventilate the air. Because if when oh, you really? get deep into the tunnel, it, it actually, you have a hard time breathing. Is this wider or is this just a train would fit? I mean, if a person was walking, would you get hit? Probably. From what I saw, it's fairly large, like when you go up and look at it today. But if there was a train in there with you, there probably wouldn't be very much room. Uh, so, But it's closed down now, so no trains go through there. Uh, but it's said that the ghost of this laborer still haunts it to this day. And there were a couple of en engineers that actually stood guard at the entrance to make sure that nobody went in there. And I, I believe that there were a couple of houses for these engineers on each end. Mm -hmm. And the ruins of one of these houses can still be found in the woods. And it was it was fairly large. It, was a, it looks like a, a big brick structure and uh, it would have been very nice in its day when it was actually functioning. How long did you say the tunnel was? Uh, 2,493 feet. Wow, that's so a long it's, tunnel. Yeah, it's the largest in Illinois, if not the whole United States. And I, I guess it was closed in 1971 and they put a big gate over it and uh, it looks like some people have tried to pry the gates, you know, and they snuck in there and I I wouldn't recommend it. God knows what's in there. But when, it, when I went to check it out, it's very difficult to find. There is a place you can park. It's actually like a forest preserve and you can go in there, but it's not really evident where it is. Mm -hmm. Basically, when you come in 
for any of your listeners who actually go out there, when you first park, you walk up a trail. Uh, my dad came with me when we went out there because he, he loves to go into these places too. And we walked for about a mile and a half and we were like, we could not find this place. We walked the whole length of the trail. Our mistake was apparently there's a very, like a sheer cliff uh, and going up to the top of this hill. And there's a bunch of like cement blocks and things. When you're looking at it, when you first come in, you don't really know what it is. And so we just passed it by because we're like, well, obviously that that can't be the tunnel because it's just a bunch of bricks laying around and there, there's dirt over it. So you can't even tell it's a tunnel. Well, th- that part actually wasn't part of the tunnel. That part was the bridge. Uh, I guess the railroad track spanned this valley. So when you come in, right, you're walking through a valley. The train tracks actually went over your head, over a bridge. So when you first walk down the trail, there's a bunch of cement blocks on your right-hand side, and that was part of the bridge. So you actually have to climb up <laughs> the side of this hill, climb up over the brick, and then you'll see there's like a long trail heading back there are uh old what are those railroad ties Mm -hmm. that are like buried in the dirt and there's a lot of moss and grass and things overgrowing the tracks how'd you ever find that it it was hard you know uh there are some websites out there that talk about it and there's actually a map that they have uh that just says you know here is where the winston tunnel was but it's not very specific was the entire train line closed then or do they just redo where the tunnel used to go or is the entire line no they, they closed the entire line and I guess this entrance is the only technically exposed entrance the other end of the tunnel I guess is completely blocked off and buried oh so you can it's not a tunnel anymore it's a huge cave then right yeah it's a, oh, that's just, creepy uh, you get yeah, way deep into that and there's something in there you're in serious trouble and so yeah so the tunnel is about a half a mile and you're right it would be about a, a half a mile cave right now uh, so it would be interesting to see you know what's back in there well, that's got to be darker than dark too my gosh yeah you'd almost need like cave exploration equipment uh some powerful lighting possibly even oxygen uh, oxygen tanks because the pump houses are no longer functional that could be a dangerous trip yeah so well that's why it's you know covered with a gate one thing that can make it worse is if it's completely submerged in water yeah but that would be well they should do some underwater exploration have you ever heard about the guy who does the um underwater ghost tours no on on the pirate ships and stuff that kind of thing it's in lake michigan actually i don't know exactly where like where it shoves off from but i do know it's kind of expensive using your nautical terms there yeah (laughs) so some of these places that i'm going to be writing about i think they're good because a lot of them are little known like i've never uh, heard of actually most of the ones you talk about i'm from the chicago southwest suburbs my entire life and seriously about 90 percent of the ones you talk about about i have never heard of in my life well i've been trying to avoid chicago not because i don't love chicago but because so much has already been written about it so i want to bring a lot of the places from around illinois you know to the chicago area listeners I never knew so. we had so many incredibly stupid names of towns in Illinois until you started telling me all these towns. I think you just sit at home making this stuff up knowing no one's going to know the difference. What, like Rick Rainbow? I mean, that's not a strange name. That was in the um, top ten strangest creatures. Oh, was that that peg leg one? Yeah, the Enfield Horror. There was a guy named Rick Rainbow who went out and recorded the, the cries of the creature. Okay, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, things like that. Those aren't normal. You obviously make that up. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not made up. It's 100% true. That was a peg-leg creature with, what 
was it? One eye and a horn or it something? It had three I legs <laughs> and a pink eyes. <laughs> okay, that was it. I can't even make this stuff up. It's so weird. Do you have I any mean, good Sasquatch stories in Illinois? I mean, they're actually sighted out here. Oh, uh, yeah. There are a couple of creatures that kind of are Bigfoot-like, but there's a, a guy named Stan Courtney who is the big Bigfoot researcher in Illinois. Yeah, Stan and, and I are good friends, actually. I, I, I turned him on to a location with some Bigfoot activity, actually. Oh, really? Well, he has a lot of information on his website. I mean, he's got a list of articles going back for to the 1800s of different sightings. Yes, we've had him on the show a few times. Cool. Yeah, I interviewed him for the Legends and Lore of Illinois once. It's interesting because, I mean, Illinois, it's a very populated state, but it has a lot of woodland areas. And I don't, I mean, I don't know about some of the people. Uh, I was at one of the MUFON conventions, and there was a lady there talking about these Bigfoot, big, big feet. I don't know what the, the plural of Bigfoot is, but they apparently like lived around her house and she communicated with them. I, you know, I don't know about all of that. I've, I've but, got doubt on a lot of stories sometimes. But it is interesting. I mean, we've got that whole forest down in southern Illinois, and uh, it wouldn't be surprising if there were things in there that that we never knew about. Well, actually, in the southwest suburbs, people don't realize that. We're not, you know, we're only 30, 40 minutes from Chicago, but we have a huge forest preserve range that runs for miles and miles and miles and miles, and a lot, right along the canal, too, which, according yeah, to Stan, is you know, a perfect spot for Sasquatch activity. Well, that's in uh, what I refer to as the Archer Avenue. New Triangle. Oh, is it? That area, uh, I believe it's the Palos Height uh, Forest Preserve District. Yeah, that's Palos. by Bachelors Grove, too. Yeah, there's that whole triangle of, of lakes and sloughs and all that area that would Isn't be... the place uh, where ships and uh, planes always disappear? No, no, <laughs> that's the Bermuda Triangle. Oh, okay. The, I only named it the Archer Avenue Triangle because... It's a triangle shape. Oh, you actually named it then, so it's not a real official name. You're just trying to start your own legends and lore. Well, I mean, it's official because I said it. So from years and years from now, there'll be someone reciting lore, and you'll have your own lore in there now. Yeah. People have this bizarre notion that American Indians are somehow, like, magical people. So they say, oh, Archer Avenue is so haunted because it used to be an Indian trail. I mean, that's just where they walked. I do hear a lot of that, actually. Uh, Indian burial grounds. That's a reoccurring theme you hear. They tend to be more haunted for some reason. I don't know well, if they are, but I hear that a lot. I think, I mean, an Indian burial ground you think would be just as haunted as a cemetery. I mean, mm -hmm. if you believe cemeteries are haunted. Uh, but I don't think, I mean, it'd be like saying, you know, say a thousand years from now, some other people replace us and they're like, oh, I-57 is where <laughs> the Americans, you know, drove their cars yeah. down. There's some sort of magical property from that. No, well, it's just a road. <laughs> That's, That's probably all. true. I mean, if you think about it, in Indian burial ground, you hear that a lot. Yeah. And, and you know, realistically, it's, why is it so much different than anything else? Right. But considering that there's been things buried everywhere that we don't know about for how many hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, there's dinosaurs buried under the ground. You know, is, are there dinosaur spirits scaring us too? Well, no, uh, I'm serious though. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that's maybe those are the demons or shadow Tr people. Tyrannosaurus Rex. Well, there's there's a couple of really cool Indian stories, especially up around Rockford where I live. There was one uh, a chief here. I think he was a Potawatomi chief named Big Thunder. Don't they have a casino? No. Pot Potawatomis? Maybe. I don't know. They have the coolest names, Indian names. It, it was, yeah, it was cool. <laughs> but this guy, um, when he died, he was buried up on a hill that that's now become the town of Belvedere. 
And I guess travelers, when they were traveling on the stagecoach route, they would uh, come into the little hut that he was buried in and steal his bones. And they would uh, take him as souvenirs and they would throw like pig bones in there. Eventually it just disappeared. You know, it got torn down. And uh, so that's one of our kind of interesting Indian that's legends. terrible, around. actually. What is wrong with people? Yeah, well, they at the time, the settlers, I mean, they didn't take it seriously. They just thought, you know, hey, here's a skeleton to play with, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, let's leave a pig bone in its place. <laughs> there's legends that I've now, I don't know very well, but uh, there's a story that there was a, a phrenologist who took the skull mm-hmm. and something bad happened to him later. Like he he died by a under train. mysterious circumstances. So people say that it was cursed. You, know, you, you got to look at that too. Like people say the curse. Okay, so he took that skull and he left in the... Uh... His brakes went out on his car, or he got hit by a train. Is that just is that because he took the skull? Yeah, I mean, 20, 20 years later, he succumbs to a genetic illness. Oh, that was the curse. Yeah, you know. that's about it. Well, that's what people say too. That's what's so funny about that. If you real, you know, he took the skull. Twenty years later, he was struck down. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how do you know it was because he took the skull? I just don't even understand some of that. Yeah, it's just an interesting story. I think. Yeah, it is, but now you got to prove, you know, you got the correlation between him dying 20 years later in the skull. Well, we have a lot of interesting stories around here based on Indian legends because we have in the middle of Rockford, there's a place called uh, Beatty Park, I think is how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. And it's an Indian mound formation. And it's right down the street from this theater called the Coronado Theater. And I, I guess the Indians had a legend about these uh, water spirits or something and people have said that uh, in the basement of the coronado they've run into these kind of chameleon like things wandering around down there no what it was was people were saying that there were these water spirits that had manifested themselves as like these uh, chameleon type creatures and I guess they were wandering around the Coronado Theater because it's so close to that Indian burial mound over there so naturally they were in the theater well, yeah, so, I mean, why, where else would you go? Don't you have a mall out there or something? <laughs> not not downtown, Rock. I know, some it, of these legends and lores, actually, if you really look at them, some, most of them are so stupid. Well, you know what I mean? They, they're just, if you really look at them, you know, scientifically or with that level head, most of them don't make any sense. It's oh, like yeah. that one, the guy took the skull 20 years later, he was struck down. Yeah, I, I'm sure it's because he took that skull. Well, there's a, a story in Belvedere about uh, a house that's haunted by this woman. And the story, I guess, was there was a, like a Confederate cavalryman that he that she fell in love with. What, what was a Confederate cavalryman doing up in Rockford, Illinois? <laughs> that part of the story really doesn't even make sense. He had a bad sense of direction. <laughs> yeah, so whenever I tell the story, I try to just say it was a soldier or some, you know, something like that because there was some kind of miscommunication there because clearly that can't be what it was. Yeah, the Confederates weren't this far north, I don't think. No, it doesn't even make sense. And uh, there was also, someone told me about like a slave cemetery up near chicago have you ever heard anything about that there's a i've heard about a lot of those actually too and they're always reported to be haunted yeah well i mean it strikes me as kind of odd because you know i mean illinois had some slaves in the very very southern part but not up around chicago and as a historian i can pretty much guarantee that that didn't happen if there was they were taken up there by somebody yeah i mean 
people in Chicago didn't own slaves. Yeah, we didn't have a lot of cotton fields in Chicago. Well, we we did have that old slave house in southern Illinois where uh, the slaves worked in the uh, salt mines. So there were that, you know. I mean, they could be saying, okay, this was a cemetery for escaped slaves. Or well, there's an underground slaves. railroad for escaped slaves. That ran all over. That's actually throughout Michigan, too. Right. I mean, that's fine. I'm willing to accept that. But I'm very skeptical of a slave cemetery as though, you know, they were actually still slaves as when they were up in Chicago. I would accept former or escaped in any of those qualifiers. So these legends and lores, looking at them, you know, kind of level-headed, most of them are just full of crap. They don't, well, the, they, they don't the, make any sense. That's what I say. I mean, the way that I look at it is uh, that it, it doesn't matter if they're true or not. You know, I'm not going out there to prove or disprove the story. You only tell the stories. You didn't live them. Right, yeah, I, you know, and that's the thing. I, I think that these stories tell us a lot about our fears, about our culture, about all kinds of things, about history, uh, but they don't have to be true, you know. I mean, if they are or if there's an, a kernel of truth in the story, that's an interesting element, but I don't feel like they have to be true exactly. A lot of this stuff isn't, though. I mean, it's been like that forever. You know, the, the stories that the, the you know the mother tells the daughter and the daughter tells her children all the way down the line, you know, generation after generation after generation, they change dramatically from start to finish, and who's to say it was even real in the beginning? Yeah, well, here's the thing. I mean, in Europe, they have stories about fairies and elves and nature spirits and things like that. We don't really have anything like that, so ghost stories are primarily our folklore. I mean, those are our mystical creatures that we talk about. Yeah, Europe's cooler. They got all kinds of, they have trolls and all kinds of neat things in Europe. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I even, I kind of wish that we had a more developed sense of like a, a local folklore and, and culture like that. Because if you go to Europe, I mean, those people have been living in the, those areas for thousands of years. And they've been have plenty of time to develop that stuff. Here, we've only been living here for, you know, uh, 150, yeah, 200 the, years. The history of Europe's amazing. I mean, you go to places there, Roman soldiers walk the streets. I mean, all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah. So this is what we have. We got places like the Winston Tunnel. So that's <laughs> what I'm... Uh, so we got totally screwed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm determined to save this lore and pass it on and, and get the information out there for people. Because it's it's important to me. I mean, I, I well, think it's important to Well, to be honest, that tunnel is interesting. I never heard of it before. And I mean, for a tunnel to be a half mile long and completely sealed on the other end, that is that is pretty cool. Oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely well, I wouldn't mind seeing that. Like I say, I don't even know if you could safely go to the end of it. Depends on the angle of the tunnel and everything, I believe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not an expert, so I wouldn't know. I'm, I'm not willing to go and try it either. Yeah, you know, I, th I think that uh, it's... It's kind of a shame that a lot of more established people like historians or journalists, they don't want to touch these topics. And I, I think it's a shame because there's so much that's being lost with every generation. Mm -hmm. Stuff like the Winston Tunnel, you know, that's something that kids just don't ever hear about. And here with these ghost stories, it's a way for those that information to continue to, to be passed down. No, all kidding aside, all these stories you have are interesting. I mean, most of what you said I've never heard of, and they really are cool stories. Like, say, I think you should expand, uh, you know, do uh, Indiana, Michigan, maybe even Wisconsin, this whole little general area here. 
Yeah, I, well, I'd like to write a book about the Midwest, but I just don't have time lately. I mean, I've been working on all, all kinds of different projects. Okay, we got anything else for us, Mike? No, that's just about it. Uh, I just would encourage your listeners to go to trueillinoishaunts.com, check out all the back issues of the Legends and Lore of Illinois, because it'll sort of give you an idea of what to expect in 2012. But I, I'm anticipating... Uh, these to be some of the best issues that we've ever had. Remember, 2012 so is a out. short year, too. It ends on the 21st. Oh, really? So I didn't sure know that. Make sure you didn't know that. No. The Mayan calendar, the end of days, what? prophecy. Oh, December, that. December I don't 21st. That. Well, you don't have to, it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It's just <laughs> going to stop. I think, therefore, I am. And I, I think the world will continue. You know, part of surviving in the world is thinking that things are going to work out even if they're not. I mean, if if the end is coming, you can't act like the end is coming, otherwise we'd cease to function as a well, society. Well, I mean, if we absolutely so. positively knew that the end was going to be December 21st, 2012, you know, we just knew somehow it was etched in stone, would it really make any difference when it comes down to it? Except for the fact that you might buy that expensive sports car and finance it that you always wanted. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mike, it's been good talking to you again, even though I'm not quite sure how much useful information we got today but uh, we will talk to you again next week yeah thanks for again for having me on and I uh, I thought the segment went well I thought we had a lot of good stuff so uh, next week we will have even more hopefully alright thank you very much Michael Clean everybody we'll be right back you're listening to Threshold Radio TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. All right, we hope you enjoyed the show tonight. Remember, every Friday night you can catch us on TheEdgeOnAir.com from 10 to 11, and that's going to be a brand new show every Friday night now. It's going to be its own format, its own style. Check it out. Starting next Friday, we're going to do that. So uh, we hope you tune in. 10 to 11, TheEdgeOnAir.com. You're not going to want to miss it also, not to mention the UFO-Info.com. That's UFO-Info.com. You can check out our Sunday night show from 7.30 to whenever, depending on when the show ends. We hope you enjoyed the show. Now remember, we're starting up the local music scene soon, so start sending your music in to us. We're trying to get rock back on the air in Chicago. I'll tell you a little bit more about that next, uh, next weekend. So we hope you enjoyed the show. Tune in next week. See you then. I'm not the only 
boy for you That's what I get That's what I get That's what I get That's what I get Slipping on the tears you've made me cry. 